Well, at some point, we do come to our last breath. It's a, a solemn and a sobering thought. And uh, I wonder how we'll feel at that time. Do we look back and reflect, how have I lived uh, my life? Is Jesus my Savior? I, I wonder uh, if Charles Wesley actually fulfilled what he, he wrote with his latest breath, was able to cry, uh, behold the Lamb. Probably someone has recorded his final uh, words, and maybe you've read a copy. If you have, then uh, I'd like to, to know, did he actually cry, behold, behold the Lamb? Well, we're in Malachi, and um, I felt it laid on my heart very much that in, in the evenings when I preached here, we should look at Malachi, the final prophecy in the Old Testament. It's not an easy book, and uh, I must admit, as I've gone through it these last few times I've been preaching here in the evening, I've uh, begun to wonder whether that was a, a good choice. But I felt the Lord had laid it on my, my heart. But there are some very difficult things being said here. And uh, God is speaking particularly to the priests and uh, the leadership. He's going to come on to the general uh, congregation of people in Israel at the time. But the whole book applies to every believer because we are a kingdom of priests in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest and we are priests together. We have access into his presence through the Lord Jesus Christ. So all these words really do apply to each and every one of us. But there's a particular emphasis at the start towards uh, leaders. In these uh, opening verses to what we have as chapter 2, there is, as it were, a final warning to the priests, to the leadership. And in this section, verses 1 to 9, there are two quite remarkable statements about the function of a priest. We've seen from chapter 1 that the priest certainly is one who ministered at the temple and uh, offered the sacrifices to God, received the offerings from the people and then offered them to God on behalf of the people. But here in chapter 2, there are two quite striking statements about the function of a priest. And it would apply to a pastor, to an assistant pastor, to an elder, to a leader, and in fact to any Christian. And so here's the first thing that uh, comes out, and it's in verse 2. Um, if you will not hear, and if you will not take to heart, to give glory to my name. So there's the priest, Malachi's time. What's his function? It is to give glory to God. To give glory to God. We all know the, um, the catechism and the first question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God. I need to remind myself of that. I'm so thankful for the rider that comes on there. It's absolutely true. To enjoy him forever. Now, am I, am I enjoying God? What a privilege. What a privilege. In Jesus Christ, we can actually enjoy God. But my chief end, as a, an assistant pastor here, the chief end of... Uh, uh, Win uh, Hughes, the chief end of the elders and the deacons, departmental leaders, Sunday school teachers, youth 
uh, workers, the chief end of every Christian is to glorify God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, we know it well. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all, all to the glory of God. What a wonderful thing to set before our eyes constantly. Uh, so, what am I about here? Uh, I have some, some notes. They're quite brief notes, generally. And uh, there's something helpful about brief notes because... I don't tend to get bound to the notes and I, I prayerfully looked at them and asked the Lord to lay a particular emphasis and, and a burden. Because they're brief notes, I'm able to look at some heading and to, uh, then to, to look up and to look at you, looking at me. And it's good to interact uh, together, but there's something of a risk in having briefer notes. And um, I, I know that Wynne uh, has a similar uh, way as well. Um, you can go off track a little. You can say things that actually weren't in your notes and maybe you haven't thought about too clearly. And at that time, it's good to have my wife in the congregation who starts to look at me and uh, I think, well, maybe just to stop here and reverse and come out of this particular uh, area. But what am I doing? What am I here for? Why are you sitting in the pews? Why have you got your particular job? Why are you students, students? And why are you doing your particular course and living where you live? It's, it's our business to glorify God. There's the chief end that I need to be constantly aiming at. Is this conversation I'm having? Is this program I'm watching? Is this gossip I'm listening to and just longing to share? Is this to the glory of God? of God. And that was the function of the priests, to glorify God. But then, wonderfully, later on in chapter 2, we're given a second function uh, of the priest. And the priesthood, as it should be, in verse 6 here, uh, we're told about this, that the priests, originally, halfway through verse 6 here, he walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. What a wonderful phrase. Here's the function of a priest. To glorify God, and in doing so, the people observe and they hear, and uh, they are enabled under God's hand to turn many away from iniquity. Turning people away from sin. Sin and its dreadful end. Sin and its dreadful consequences here and now. And its awful ultimate consequences. The wages of sin is death. People need to repent. Repent of sin. We have to face the living God. We have to give an account as to how uh, we have lived. We need to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thinking about uh, the herald this morning. Uh, John the Baptist and some of his first words. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's all our business here below to cry, Behold the Lamb. What a wonderful hymn that we just were able to, to sing. Thinking about priests as they ought to be then, glorifying God and turning many away from iniquity. 
Let's think now of the powerful influence of godly people. The powerful influence of a godly minister. I was thinking about this and uh, picked up again the Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter, that great Puritan uh, preacher, went to the, well, I suppose the town of Kidderminster, and uh, he preached there for a number of years. In the introduction here, we're told something about what Kidderminster was like when Baxter uh, first arrived there. The town contained about 800 homes and around 2,000 people. They were an ignorant, rude, and reveling people when Baxter arrived. But this changed dramatically over the time that he was there. When he first arrived, he uh, recounts that uh, there was scarcely one family in each street that had any thoughts uh, of God at all. But by the end of his uh, ministry, after six years there actually, uh, he was able to say there was scarcely one family in each street that didn't seek to worship God. The church in which he ministered would hold about a thousand people and it was packed on a Sunday and they had to add five galleries. Now, I don't know how that happened. Maybe someone's got a sketch of the, uh, the, the church there, but were they going up, stacked up? Can you imagine being on the fifth gallery here? It's high enough there, isn't it? And at the back there, but so many people wanted to come and hear. What a dramatic transformation in Kidderminster. How was the priest meant to have such an influence, to give glory to God and to turn many from iniquity? How did Baxter go about his God-given business? How am I to go about my God-given ministry? How are you to go about your God-given ministry? Well, the priest was to be one who gave instruction. We often think about the priest as one who ministers at the temple. But a large part of their work was to interpret the law and to teach the people the law of God. And here it is in verses 6 and 7. The law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity for the lips of the priest should keep knowledge and the people should seek the law from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priest gave instruction. How did he glorify God? He made known the law of God to the people. How did he turn many away from iniquity? Uh, he showed them what the consequence of the law was. He showed them how to turn from sin. He taught the word of God. Plain and simple, he taught the word of God. We need to have great confidence in God's word. The Apostle Paul tells us, inspired by the Spirit, oh, he says, in a dark world such as this, I, I'm going to Rome, the very centre uh, of power and authority from a worldly point of view, but I'm going to take the gospel. Aren't you a little bit embarrassed about the gospel, Paul? Certainly not. I'll tell you this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, plain and simple, I'll spell it out. For it is the power of God to salvation 
to everyone who believes. It's the only hope for mankind. It's more powerful than Rome. Uh, it's God's. Now, we've, uh, we have this stuff called dynamite. Now, there wasn't dynamite in Paul's day, but he uses the Greek word dunamos, which we get dynamite. It's explosive. Uh, it's powerful. It is the power of God to save sinners. So to have great confidence in God's word, and in particular in the gospel. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God, here it is now, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. This is the word of God. It's sufficient for life and godliness. There's enough in this book to bring you to heaven. Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance towards God, faith in Jesus Christ. It's found here in the Bible. And there's enough for you to live by as a Christian. How do I live? It's here in his word. It is sufficient for life and for godliness. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Now, is there such a division? Well, there could be a theological debate on that, but we don't want to go up any blind alleys uh, tonight. But if there could be a division, uh, this sword, the Word of God, pierces there. And to joints and, and marrow, where does the joint end and the marrow start? And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is nothing, there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So here's the priest. He has the plain word of God. There wasn't a great deal of it in uh, the priest's time, but uh, there it was. And what he had, he was to minister to the people, not to dress it up, not to dumb it down, not to expand, not to contract, but the word of God, plain and simple. It is the power of God. And in particular, contained in the Bible. Now the Bible is all the word of God. And every part of it is wonderful and profitable for teaching, training, correcting in right and training in righteousness. The man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. But we can draw out from the Bible how it is that a person can ever come to know God and be sure of heaven. And if a friend came to me and said, what must I do to be saved? There are certain parts of the Bible I would immediately look to go to. And I would summarize and I would bring out the eternal gospel, that irreducible essence of the Bible that irreducible minimum whereby a man, a woman, a child, a young person, good to see some youngsters here again tonight. Children, are you saved? Do you know you're going to heaven? Has Jesus saved you? Do you know your sins have been forgiven? Uh, how can it happen? Now, I'm not going to give you some visions from Revelation. I'm going to tell you about uh, the mold on the walls of the uh, homes in the Old Testament times, what the priests did to do. It's very interesting and there are gospel applications there. But I'll tell you about Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who left the glory of heaven and came into this world. He became a man. He was a little child like you are right now. 
He had to grow. He had to learn to speak. But he hadn't stopped being God. He's the God child. He's the God boy. He's the God teenager. Uh, he's the God man. And he's come to take away your sin. And he does it by doing those two remarkable things. To get to heaven, I need a clean life. I need to keep the Ten Commandments, not only in, in uh, outwardly, but also inwardly with my heart. I can't do it. You can't do it. But Jesus did it for me. He keeps the Ten Commandments. He keeps the law of God that the priests would explain. But my sin still needs to be paid for. The wages of sin is death. And I'll tell you about Jesus Christ who went all the way to Calvary. Why has he gone there? He says, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. I've come to pay the debt that you be eternally in hell paying and never pay off a fraction of it. Imagine forever and ever and ever under the displeasure and the wrath of a holy being, God. What's the way out? Not religion. Only Jesus Christ can do helpless sinners good. He lived for you, he died for you, he rose again, proving it's all true, and he is who he claimed to be. What do you need to do to be saved? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How marvellous, how wonderful, how simple. You need to stoop down low. Step down from your pride. Cease from striving to please God in your own merits. You can never do it. But receive what Christ has done for you. Here's the instruction. And Richard Baxter going through Kidderminster would go door to door, house to house, catechizing families, children, young people, mums and dads, and initially hostile responses, but slowly uh, but surely as he teaches from house to house, they start to come into the chapel. He didn't just open the doors and hope people would come in. He went out. He had a systematic way of going around Kidderminster. Kidderminster was his parish. Now we need to think today, how, how do we turn many from iniquity? We're all priests, a kingdom of priests to our God. I happen to be an assistant pastor. I was a pastor. We have a pastor. We have elders. It's not just the pastor's job, the assistant pastor and the elders or the uh, departmental leaders. It's all our business to seek to turn sinners from iniquity to Christ. How do we do that? Baxter went house to house and catechizing and the hostility he faced at first, but he persevered prayerfully. And eventually the chapel, the church, began to fill. He taught them the word of God. And when they came to church, he preached the word of God. And this is what the priest should have been doing. This is what any minister needs to be uh, doing. Having confidence in the pure, simple word of God. Not dressing it up, not dumbing it down. In many churches, the Word of God, there's almost an apology for it. Well, we've had the worship, now we'll hear what God has to say. This is the climax to all that we do here. The Word of God being declared. The minister just simply needs to open the book, read the passage, tell you what it says, announce the final hymn, and give a closing prayer. That's it. Don't have to find any fancy way to do things. There are some ministers, pastors, very slick. Let's get more and more uh, contemporary illustrations. Let's tell you how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a dutiful child, how to get on at work, how to know prosperity. 
The Bible's not a how-to-do book. It's, it's a how-to-be book. And we need to have confidence in its contents. The Bible, pure and simple. I'm thinking back again to my first visits here as a student. Do you know, if you hear back the, uh, the ministry of Vernon High, I mean, I've, I've, I have done it from time to time. It was really very simple. I remember him going through the Sermon on the Mount. There was nothing complicated there. Nothing clever. He'd read the passage. He'd tell you what the passage said. He'd give some helpful illustrations. But I tell you this. There was a remarkable power. I've not known from that day to this. God honoring that simple, clean reading of the Scriptures and explaining what it said. Oh, may God bless the pure, simple preaching of the Gospel. For the priests there and then, that was their duty. And they had the shadows and the types and the prophecies. But we have now the full reality. The full reality. And there's Richard Baxter in Kidderminster. He says some interesting things here, which I have to say I heartily agree with in uh, his little book here, The Reformed Pastor. Gospel preaching. I I'm so thankful now to be in a church, and I was in a church as a student because I, I came here after a couple of years after my conversion. And uh, at that time, it was uh, teaching for believers in the morning, and it was uh, uh, one-off gospel verses every Sunday evening. And I knew that if I brought a friend here Sunday evening, that friend would hear the gospel. Let me tell you a little story. Yeah, I've got time. When I finished my student days, and I, as a student here, I made some good friends in the Christian Union. And uh, then we moved to London, and I worked for five years in London as, as a chemist. And we lived in the East End of London. And uh, then we were asked to come back to the Heath, myself and uh, my wife were with me and the two kids, and uh, I worked amongst international students. I was the Levon of the, the, the time. And I took over from Peter and Gwyneth Hayden, and then um, Stephen Chris Owens took over from, from me. But it's a long tradition here of working with international students. That's by the way, but I was, I'd been here for three years working in the Heath. There was a friend of mine in the Christian Union from Cardiff who'd also moved to London, and one Sunday night, I was in the evening service on that gallery, and over on that gallery is my friend Noel from London. And after the service, he had a friend with him, and I said, oh, what's brought you here tonight? He said, well, this is my friend. My friend's not yet a believer. And I thought, where can I take my friend where they'd hear the gospel? He lived in London. He said, I know Vernon Himes preaching at Heath tonight. And they got in the car and they came to Cardiff and they came to Heath so he could guarantee his friend heard the gospel. Quite, quite remarkable. I don't know the end of the story, whether that friend ended up being converted, but oh, how important it is that we have a gospel service where we know we can bring friends, they will hear the gospel. And we pray that God would move and bring them to faith, turning many from iniquity. 
Is this our aim? Do we have it before our eyes? It's said of uh, John Wesley that every day he kept heaven and hell before his eyes. That eternal perspective, so very vital. Now, here's, um, here's Baxter on this area of gospel preaching. We must labor in a special manner for the conversion of the unconverted. The work of conversion is the first and greatest thing we must drive at. After this, we must labor with all our might. Alas, the misery of the unconverted is so great that it calleth loudest to us for compassion. We have therefore a work of greater necessity to do for them even to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them that are sanctified. I confess, he says, I am frequently forced to neglect that which should tend to the further increase of knowledge in the godly because of the lamentable necessity of the unconverted. Well, high priority of gospel preaching held high by Richard Baxter. So, here's the function of a priest. Here's the function of a pastor. I'd apply it to every believer to turn many from iniquity. Uh, how do we do that? Hold before them the eternal gospel of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that was vital. Uh, in Baxter's time. That's the first thing that was vital for the priests. But also equally vital now, the second way in which many were turned from iniquity is simply this, a godly life that backed up the gospel message. A godly life. Here it is, verse 5. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. And so he feared me and was reverent before my name. Verse 6, he walked with me in peace and equity. Here are the priests. What should they do? Not only give the word of God, but live a godly life. An example to show to the people. Reminded of Robert Murray McShane, they're ministering in uh, Dundee. He said this, my People's greatest need is my own godliness. My people's greatest need is my own godliness. So again, for a pastor, for an assistant pastor, for an elder, for a deacon, uh, for leaders. Now we're coming up to uh, the election of deacons. It's good to hear and to see that people are being nominated. People are willing to stand for this uh, most important God-given office. But it's interesting looking at the list of um, qualifications to be both an elder and a deacon. I won't read it now because uh, time is, is passing on. But if you went to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 to 13, there are a list of qualifications for both elders and deacons. When you read through those list of qualifications, only two of those verses mention teaching gifts. Able to teach, we're told, about the, uh, the elder 
and uh, holding the mysteries of the gospel, we're told about the, the, the deacon. But the rest, the other 11 verses, are all about the life of the church officer, whether it's the elder or the deacon. It's his life in the family, uh, in the neighborhood, and in the life of the church. What do you see in the life of that man? Because for those priests in the Old Testament, for me as a pastor, an assistant pastor, for the pastor here, and for you, from the Word of God, we can tell them what they should be doing. But it's our very lives that should be a living example of the gospel. The gospel needs to be shown to be credible by the fact that we are different. Again, an old song comes to my mind. I think I, I can get it right. Things are different now. Something's happened to me since I gave my heart to Jesus. Things are different now. Something's happened to me since I gave my life to Him. Things I loved before, they've passed away. Things I love far more, they've come to stay. Things are different now. Something's happened to me since I gave my life to Him. Our lives ought to be an illustration of this dynamite of the gospel. How should I live? How do I live out the Christian life? It should be illustrated. Certainly in the life of the priests and the church leaders, we ought to be living examples. Paul says to the church in Corinth, follow me, he says. You want to know what a Christian life should be like? I've looked to live it out amongst you. I was with you for those 18 months. Remember how I lived? And so in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, he says this, follow me. And then he qualifies it. As I follow Christ. Was Paul a perfect man? Certainly not. He had his failings. But I ought to be able to look at Win Hughes. And we ought to be able to look at leaders within a church and say, well, that's, there's an example of what it means to be a Christian. Again, something comes to, to mind now. Here's a, a young couple at St. Melons, uh, converted from nowhere in particular, no church-going background, uh, converted before they were married. They already had children, but uh, in being converted at the same time together, God was so gracious, the first thing he did was get, get married. And uh, then uh, a couple of years later, it was my wedding anniversary, and it was my wife's wedding anniversary as well, actually. We have uh, the same date. And uh, they sent us a card. Uh, and it was two peas in a pod on the cover. And they said, you are like two peas in a pod. You make marriage look easy peasy. And then they put underneath, this, this is so true. Now, that's interesting. And chatting with them afterwards, oh, thank you for the card, and thank you for that lovely comment. Well, it's, it's right, and they said this, listen, we, we had no idea what it, how to live, what, what husband and a, and a wife, I'm sorry to use myself as an example, but it's a ready one, it, it was there. But you set an example, and we look to try to follow that. Well, to qualify it with them, only follow us as you find we're following the pattern of the Bible the Word will tell us what to do. Our lives ought to show people that it's real and it's powerful and uh, God is faithful. 
That's what a priest should be. But these priests, these priests, and here comes the final warning to them, through their cold, heartless, thoughtless, mechanical service. Verse 8, But you, priests, have departed from the way and have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. You have caused many to stumble. Rather than turning many from iniquity, you've caused many to stumble. All the awesome responsibility of leaders in a church in particular. Believers generally, we have an awesome responsibility. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. My friends, if society is dark, and it is, whose fault is it? If your food isn't salty, where's the fault? If a room is dark, where's the fault? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. God's response to the priest is one of, of judgment. One of judgment. Verse 2, If you will not hear, if you will not take to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment. So coming to something of a conclusion, I will send curses upon you. Unless you repent, unless you turn, unless you heed, I will send these curses upon you. The, the Hebrew word apparently is one that is a very powerful one. I will hurl these curses upon you. Number one, I will curse your, your blessings, the wonderful priestly blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. As he commands, he brings and invokes blessings on the people. God says, I will turn those to, to curses. In fact, I'm already doing that, says the Lord. How does that work out today? Perhaps lifeless, dry, stern, joyless, dull sermons. No spirit, no heart, no light. He goes on to say, The Lord, I will, I will rebuke your descendants, verse 3. Quite what that means. I will rebuke your descendants. I wonder how many children have been turned off Christianity by parents who serve well in the church, but then there's a hypocrisy that the children can see very, very well. How many children of the manse and children brought up with a pastor have been turned away by seeming hypocrisy in the life of the pastor? If we're not living real, children, you see, are very discerning. What examples are they set in the home? Maybe it means this also, a lack of converts. Are we, I believe we are seeing converts here. I hear good news about people coming to faith uh, here. That is a very encouraging thing. 
to see that people are coming to faith. But one of the curses, perhaps, on a barren ministry is just that. Very few or no converts year after year. If we're not seeing converts, we have to ask the question, is there an issue? Is there a problem? We need to be earnest in prayer in the prayer meetings. Lord, show us where we're going wrong. If we are going wrong, it could well be. It is a time where there will be a dearth in the land. But maybe we at least ought to ask the question, is there something in us, O Lord? I heard the story of Duncan Campbell, greatly used in the Hebridean revivals. And at one point, uh, ministering in a particular church, the church was full. And people had been converted, and the church was, was full. And one evening... Duncan Campbell's daughter came to him and she said, Daddy, why aren't people being saved anymore? Well, what do you mean? that The chapel is, is full. Yes, but, but Daddy, people used to come and see you in your little room and they go, they go in crying, they come out smiling. Daddy, why aren't people being saved anymore? And he thought about what she'd said. He's very challenged by what she'd said. It was a lack of conversions at that particular time. And he set himself to pray. And he prayed something he doesn't recommend we pray for unless the Lord lays it on your heart. He asked the Lord for a vision of judgment. And God granted him that. And it put more fire into his preaching. And people began to be converted again. Verse 3, a little bit later on. Another judgment. Quite a graphic piece here. And I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts. Here's the offal from the offerings that would be taken out of the camp and burnt. I'll spread it over your faces. I will humiliate you before the people, says the Lord, for your lack of heart and thoughtless worship. How would that apply today? Well... How many men, sadly, do we hear who have fallen? Men who once ran well. Men who once were used to herald uh, the gospel, but something has, has happened. And many who we've known, well, not many, but a number, have fallen and have been humiliated. And their names in, in the press. And then the Lord says, another curse I will give. I will take you away with the refuse. I, I will remove you. And of course, it's what happened eventually. The priests were removed. But thank God, his eternal plan is not thwarted. Those priests were replaced by that lion from the tribe of Judah. The high priest from the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he makes us to be a kingdom of priests to the glory of his name. What has happened in our land in recent times? Those times of revival, well, they're not even a distant memory. We can't talk to anybody who was around in times of revival. When I was here as a student, I could talk to Mr. Hyam, who knew people in his first church in Ponte de Lice, who were converted in the revivals. And uh, they were known as children of the revival. Um, I've forgotten the Welsh 
term. I won't, I won't try it now from, from my fading memory, but children, he said there was something very special uh, about them. Now, I, I've only read about these things and heard recordings from people like Duncan uh, Campbell, but I was talking to, um, I think it was, I think it was you, Wynne Win Evans, and I know that uh, you go down to West Wales quite a, a lot and chat to, to farmers, and it's a, a wonderful work, and uh, we pray much for you and Angela as you, you do that vital work. But I think we were talking about, you were saying, the number of chapels that have closed down in Pembrokeshire that once shared the gospel and were great lights, but now they're, they're empty or very, very few. What, what has happened in the land? We need to be very much in prayer. Let me conclude by saying this. God's heart in the matter, I want to end very positively these, these are harsh things to have to consider. And then we've got a saying up, up, up north uh, where I come from, if the cap fits, wear it. Perhaps this has got nothing to do with you and you're running well, but I have to examine my own heart and you examine your heart as well. And if the cap fits, wear it. Maybe this is just something to, to, to note for the present and, and refer to in the future, but maybe, maybe the Lord is putting his finger on individual lives here, leaders, members, pastors, assistant pastors, elders, deacons. What is God's heart? He longs that we will be restored. I think of the whole central thrust of Malachi. I have loved you. And God's desire in chapter 3 that the people would return to him returning to him. And verse 2 of chapter 2 is uh, very, very helpful. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart. If. Oh, I long that you would, but if you won't, the judgments will come. But God's desire is that they would return. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us watch and pray. It's not an easy word, the book of Malachi, but it is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a time in your word, not easy things, but we thank you for your heart that we would be those who are restored and basking in your eternal love towards us. So help us in these things, we pray. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to each and every one of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.